What is going on, guys? Welcome to today's show, and I am really excited and probably also really nervous about this next guest. I am not one to geek out over celebrities or, you know, famous people or however you want to look at it, but this guy is a guy I've looked up to for a long time in the podcasting world, in the hunting world. Um, I've listened to his voice for way too many hours at this point. I've been listening to him for three or four years now. Um, but his name is Dan Johnson. He runs Sportsman's Nation and Nine Finger Chronicles, and I am honored to have him as a guest on the show. I can't wait to jump into this conversation. He's probably pretty close to season where he's at in Iowa. I know we're only a couple weeks away. He's probably as well, maybe a month. But um, I'm excited to hear the tips and tricks and strategies that he has for this upcoming season, as well to get caught up on some of his recent hunts and what is going on in his world. Um, he's been trying out Western big game hunting, and so we'll see how that's been going for him. So let's jump into this podcast. I hope you all enjoy, and I hope my nerves calm down a little. Like, he was doing things that were just badass. That was one of the coolest moments of my life. I was really scared, but knowing that Dan had the gun, I did have the rifle, like, we would be okay. All right, guys, welcome to the show. And on today's show, I've got a guy who I've been following for years now. Um, he actually kind of inspired me to get into podcasting, so it's cool to be on with him. But this is Dan Johnson. Um, I started listening to him on uh, Wired to Hunt podcast probably three years ago, and he's blown up since that first episode I listened to. And so thanks for being on the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for uh, having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, for, for listeners who may not know you or may not be familiar with the work that you're doing, could you give a brief uh, description of who you are, um, what you're currently involved in? Yeah, so first and foremost, before, before we go anywhere, I have to say I am in a very positive mood today, very awesome mood, because today is the first day of school and... <laughs> There's no kids in the house right now. And I'm freaking jacked about that. Uh, so finally, and I say that because I'm, I'm a father first and all summer long, I was doing basically playing daddy daycare. And today I am 50% done with all the work that I have to do. And it's only one o'clock in the afternoon where I'm at. And I have a, you know, I have some other things to do, but then I don't even know what I'm going to do with the rest of my night. Man, you're going to have to like uh, take up yoga or like some weird activity. Right, right. So the uh, that's what I do first and foremost, uh, take care of the kids. But now that school's on, I can really uh, put all that focus and energy back into the Sportsman's Nation. That's a, a podcast network that I own and run. And uh, my other podcast that I host, uh, the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast that I host. And then the, uh, the hunting gear podcast, which is all about hunting gear and equipment. And then the Iowa hunt and fish podcast as well. Man, you've got your hands full. I'm struggling with one podcast and you've got a whole network <laughs> and like 12 more of your own. Yeah. It's uh, fun, dude. I, I just love talking to people about really anything outdoors, even things that I don't personally do. Like, let's just say I don't, I fish a little bit, but I don't fish a lot. Um, I don't trap at all. But what I really love 
through all, all those podcasts, even if it's something that I don't do uh, or I don't find passion in, I would say, I love talking to people who have the same passion for trapping that I do for whitetails. And you can really connect with that passion and just have awesome conversations. Oh yeah. My wife always jokes if we're in a room, she's like, I feel like you could make friends with a rock. I'm like, well, if the rock yeah. is into the outdoors, I absolutely could. <laughs> and yeah, that, I mean, that's why I started this whole thing is I just wanted to connect with people, um, hear stories, same type of thing, passion. Uh, I'm not big. I mean, I fish, but I'm not like a crazy fisherman, but I've had guys on the show that, yeah, I mean, I could feel their energy through my speakers and yeah. it's some of the best podcasts that I've had. Um, just hearing people who absolutely love what they do with the outdoors. And so, uh, tell me this, how did you first get into podcasting? Well, I invited, I invited Mark Kenyon down for, uh, a shed hunt down in Iowa. One day he came from Michigan and we did some shed hunting that weekend. And then before he left, he asked me, he asked me, this was, you know, when, before the, the Wired to Hunt podcast was even started, if I wanted to be the co-host of the show. And I said, yes, you know, hey, I'll give this podcast thing a try. And so I was the co-host, man, up until, oh, up until about, I don't even know how long it's been since I, I haven't been, I guess, regular on his show, but uh, the first I don't know, two years, I was the, the, the co-host on, on the podcast. And then I'd say about it, about six months, maybe after the wired to hunt podcast started, uh, six months to a year, I started the nine finger chronicles podcast. And then from there, it really just snowballed into the network and to all these other podcasts. So that's cool. Um, yeah. Uh, so like I said, I'm behind a little bit because I'm still listening to episodes that you were on, on the wired to hunt podcast. Yeah. So I don't know any new stuff. Uh, you, you had gotten into elk hunting at that point. Um, yep. you, you got new properties to hunt, which I think you're kind of constantly in a cycle of trying to find new properties to hunt. Do you have your own property that you hunt yet? I know you always talked about that. Yeah, no, man, that's something that is high on my list of things someday to be a landowner, right? Yep. Um, uh, land prices in Iowa right now are absolutely crazy. So you just got to keep saving and keep saving and hopefully you can find the right piece that pops up uh, to do that. But as of right now, it's all public and permission uh, type hunting for me. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. We keep talking about buying just a small plot of land even if it's like five or 10 acres, I know my buddy bought some yeah. last year, it's 10 acres, but he had a bunch of really good deer just passing through during the rut. And I was like, man, it would just be cool to like harvest a deer on your own property. There's something about it. Oh yeah. Yeah. But, that's, uh, that's definitely, that's definitely a goal I see in my future, but, uh, you know, who knows how, how far down the line that is. Yeah. What, uh, what's hunting look like? I think I'm probably two seasons behind on <laughs> any updates that you've got. What did, what did the last couple seasons look like for you? Um, as far as whitetails are concerned, very good. Um, this guy here, I got him and then this guy, I don't know if you can see him, this guy down there, oh. that guy. Yep. I, so I got, 
I got, I'm on a streak. I'm like five years in in a row. I've been able to successfully harvest uh, um, some really good deer here in Iowa. As far as elk, I haven't killed an elk yet. Um, Elk the last two years has been put on the back burner. I've kind of fallen in love with mule deer hunting, like spot and stalk mule deer hunting. Um, So I've been going out to the uh, Nebraska and the Dakotas to try to you know, run into something. I'm not too terribly focused on antler size. Like a lot of people are, I'm just, I honestly just want to shoot a mule deer so I can say I'm multi-species. I'm a multi-species. Yeah. Hunter, so, yeah, that's cool. I had, I had the best year of my life a couple of years ago. My wife and I planned a trip to Alaska oh, okay. for our five-year anniversary. And I was like, man, I want to hunt a blacktail on Kodiak Island. That would be amazing. And then I started thinking about it. We lived in Colorado at the time. I was like, man, I could potentially get a blacktail, a whitetail, a mule deer, and an elk all in one year. And I was like, yeah. I don't even care about the elk. I just want those three. And I started out, went to Alaska, first day, shot a blacktail. And I was like, oh, man, this is awesome. Cloud nine. Came back to Colorado, and I ended up uh, tagging a bull elk and a mule deer on the same day. And I was like, this is the greatest year ever. And then I, we moved back to Missouri and I ended up shooting two bucks there. And I was like, I just need to be done hunting. I've killed every animal that I've ever wanted to. And, uh, she's like, you're not going to be done. You're going to be ready to go again next year. So, um, yeah, mule deer hunting. It's a different world. It does. Yeah. yeah. Everyone's like, man, you're, you're accomplished now. And I'm like, well, I'm more lucky than I am accomplished and <laughs> all, but the white tails were taken with a rifle. And so I'm like, now I need to start over and go through it all with a bow. Um, because right. when I lived in Colorado, I was like, man, I just, it was a 3% success rate with a bow for a bull elk. And I was like, that's rough. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'd rather get out with a rifle and learn how to hunt these animals first and then come back with a bow and do it. And so that's my goal next year. Yeah. Um, all the stories, right? Oh yeah. The the stories. It's like, I I don't know about you, but you tell a story about a rifle hunt and then you tell a story about a bow hunt. Those bow hunt stories, just, they, they hit just a little bit harder. You know what I mean? They're, they, there's something about a a good bow hunting story that takes the cake. Yeah. I mean, when, when you can smell the animal that you're hunting, it makes it a whole lot different. You know, when you're that close to an elk. Um, yeah, when I tell my elk hunting story, I'm like, man, I shot this elk from 330 yards away. Like, no, it didn't know it. I was there, but I almost didn't know it was there either. Like I just kind of got lucky. Um, but yeah, bow hunting is now that, now that I'm back in Missouri, that's become my number one passion again. Um, my wife actually got me a new bow for my birthday and I'm shooting it like crazy. So I'm pumped. I think we only have like 20 days till our season starts. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I'm getting fired up. I got three weeks until I head into, uh, head West for some mule deer. And I'm just like right now refining my gear, shooting my bow, buttering up the wife, you know, all that, all that good stuff. Getting all those honeydews. Yeah. I know how that goes. Uh, one, one person mentioned on a video of mine and they said, listen, bring your wife Chick-fil-A all the time and she'll let you hunt whenever you want. <laughs> I was like, that's a good idea. I'm just going to Chick-fil-A Starbucks cards and target trips and she'll be a happy camper. Right. Yeah. 
How have many you, kids do you have? I've got two. I've got a two-year-old or no, okay. a three-year-old girl and a soon-to-be five-year-old boy in like, let's see, eight days. He'll be five. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. So it's, uh, it just gets crazier. I got three kids and, you know, you can butter them up uh, as much as you want. But the, but when you're four days into a 10 day trip and you get that text, that's like, when are you going to be home? Yep. Yeah. You know, the brownie points, the trips, the Starbucks, none of that matters at all anymore. Nope. <laughs> I, I know exactly how you feel. I just got back from another trip to Alaska. Um, me and two guys that I know, we went up there, did a bunch of fishing and it was the same thing. My wife was like, Oh, I'm so happy for you. Like you, you get to go up and just hang out. And she's like, how long is this trip? And I'm like 11 days. And she's like, okay, I'll be good. Like I've got my mom and my sister and my grandparents, everybody here. And I just get like the face palm emoji a couple days yeah. in. And then my trip just wasn't as enjoyable after nope, that. I was like, Oh is. man, when, when she's back home stressed out, I can't fully enjoy myself at all. Right. Yeah. Same. I brought back a bunch of fresh fish. So I think she's happy with me now. Good deal. Um, when you're, when you're going on these mule deer hunts, you said, this is kind of your new passion. Um, are you taking any type of decoy? I know they make those silhouette decoys now that attach to your bow or you can stock up or are you just going like straight primal? Yeah, man. You know, I, I've been told to buy one. I just haven't done it. Um, I might pick one up before this, before I go in three weeks, but the last three times I've been mule deer hunting, I, I didn't use a decoy. I'm, I'm basically just sitting up high at the highest vantage point, glassing, watching them, trying to move into the same drainages that they're in and, you know, surprise them via spot and stock, um, or, you know, try to wait for them at night to come out of the draws up into any type of egg field or where they're, where they're feeding at night or trying to catch them coming back into the drainages or, or bedding areas and just trying to find a way to intercept them. And I, I am getting my butt kicked by mule deer these last couple of years, but every time I go out there, I learn something different and yep. it puts me in a better position to the point where last this past December, when I went out um, on my second South Dakota trip of the year, I got closer and closer every time I did a stop to the point where I finally drew back on a buck, but he saw me and uh, took off. So I'm, you know, I don't, I don't want to say I'm overconfident, but I'm confident now knowing what I've learned in the past couple of years that when I go in September or I go back to some of these places uh, in uh, October as well, that I'm just going to be that much more educated and that much more, uh, I guess, closer to uh, getting the job done on, on a mule deer. Man, that is awesome. I think, I think spot yeah. and stock is one of the coolest things ever. I mean, I grew up in Wisconsin being a whitetail hunter, sitting on a five gallon bucket upside down on a hillside or on a dead log. But now that I've experienced Western big game hunting, I'm like, man, this is, it's, it's awesome. I mean, it's a rush. Like once you yeah. see them and then you start pursuing it, it's, it's way different, but I will say archery yeah. whitetail still has to be my favorite at this point. Maybe, it, maybe that'll yeah. change if I take my bow out West, but where, where does it, yeah, yeah. where does that stack up for you Whitetail. right now? Yeah. Whitetails is always going to be number one. I mean, that's, 
I live, I live in the Mecca, right. Yeah. Of whitetail, you know, the whitetail game in Iowa. And as of right now, I still have some pretty good land that, uh, I can hunt, but, um, there's just after, after elk hunting and after mule deer hunting, you really do get to witness how special whitetail, uh, whitetails are. And what I mean by that is after hunting these mule deer, I get to see how, I don't want to say stupid, but more relaxed they are for the most part around human presence. Yeah. Like for what I've kind of witnessed is whitetails. They don't take any chances. They are, if they smell you, they're gone. If they see you, they're gone. Even in a state like Iowa, where some people would argue that, you know, it, it's lower, lower pressure than states, let's say like Michigan or Pennsylvania or New York or, or uh, places like that. But you get, you, you hunt in an environment where you see whitetails and mule deer in the same areas. And you see how skittish a whitetail is compared to a mule deer. And uh, a mule deer is just a little bit more relaxed. So the way I look at it is, man, if you can become successful bow hunting, especially a white-tailed deer, and I guess doing it consistently, that's something special. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I totally agree. And then on on top of all that with hunting whitetail, you have like the trail camera and the habitat management and improvement. And like there's so many facets to it where – I feel like Western big game hunting, it's like you can get good at spot and stock. You can learn the wind, you can learn their movement. But as far as like documenting the same animals over and over all year long, finding their sheds, like it is, it's almost non-existent. Yeah. It's tough to do. I know guys, I know who guys who uh, follow certain mule deer and certain elk uh, on a yearly basis, but nothing compared to, the amount of people who do it on a annual basis, you know, with whitetails, especially if people have the ability to plant food plots and hold deer on their properties. Um, that's something that I don't have the ability to do because I don't plant food plots or I don't have the ability to plant food plots or, or do any type of habitat management. So like my style is really kind of just go to the deer and not wait for the deer to come to me. Yeah. Uh, as far as, as far as like documenting deer, wh- where are you at right now? Have you had trail cameras out for the summer? Um, do you have any big bucks that you're hoping to catch up with this year? Yeah. So there's one particular deer and I won't know probably until this weekend when I go to check cameras, um, if he's around or not. Um, I got another, so basically right now I have two deer that are returning customers as far as being able to document them, not last year, but the year before I found a couple good sheds. I believe one of the antlers that I found is to a buck that I just got trail camera pictures of a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, he's going to be a stud this year. And I haven't checked my trail cameras yet on another farm, but if, uh, there's a, a buck I passed not last year, but the year before he was a really good 11 pointer and, uh, I passed him thinking he was, uh, thinking he was a three-year-old or a, a younger deer. And uh, he showed up the next year. He blew up. I didn't get an opportunity at him last year. Uh, so I'm co- kind of hoping he shows up uh, again this year and I can make a move on him, especially with this crop rotation that we're currently in. And uh, that it just, 
the it's all laid out to where uh, I might have an a, you know a, a possibility or an opportunity to uh, you know draw back on them, I guess. All right, guys, if you enjoy this show and you want to know how to make your own, I'm going to tell you about something called Anchor. It's an app that I've been using ever since I started, and it's completely free. Like I said, I've used it from the get-go, and I haven't had to pay a single penny to distribute my podcasts through this app. They've got creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcasts right from your phone, tablet, computer, so you don't have to get a bunch of fancy equipment in order to get started. Now you can also add songs directly from Spotify into your episodes. So, I mean, you can create whatever you want, something that nobody's ever heard before, and it's so easy. Just click and drag. Anchor is also going to help you distribute your podcast. And so you don't have to upload it to all of these different platforms. Anchor can be that central hub that your podcast goes out to all of the other platforms through. And you can make money without any minimum listenership. So, I mean, you heard that right. You can actually start making money right away, no matter how many listeners you have. So what I'm getting at is it's basically everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So go and download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you've got it kind of dialed in there. Five, five seasons in a row coming out on top, um, finding success with your bow. Have you, have you changed at all your, I guess, requirements for deer that you're taking now? It seems like, I mean, you're figuring it all out. So have you bumped the age structure up at all, or are you still sticking like four and a half year old? Yeah. I mean, ultimately I would love a a four and a half year old or older, but for me, it's more about the experience. So if I shoot a deer, it's because he got me excited and it's not necessarily because of the age class. It's not necessarily because of the antlers. Um, or if I have history with that deer or not, if I'm in the right, it's all about mood at that exact moment for me. So if a deer walks by and it gets me going, Ooh, buddy, I'm going, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to draw back and, and throw an arrow at him. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't ever, I typically don't ever go, Hey, I'm only hunting one deer or bust. I have a little bit of a hit list that I, I put together every single year. Sometimes I shoot the deer on the list. Sometimes I don't. Um, and it's just, again, at that moment, what I'm feeling like, and, uh, I don't know. How, how many of these bucks that you're after, um, do they stay on the property for a good portion of the year? Do they show up sporadically? Is it more rut traveling deer or how does that look for you? It's, it's different every year. I, I I'd like to say there's some kind of consistency, but one thing that I've noticed is the properties that I hunt are really good during the summer months. They hold a ton of deer. There's a ton of vegetation in there, especially at, you know, ground level, the habitats there, the covers there, the foods there, the, uh, the waters there. So it makes it ideal for, um, for summer, like the summer months. Now something happens in September and you hear people talk about this September shift all the time where the velvet comes off. There is a, a jockeying for position. This is when like the dominant bucks flex their muscle and they're going to go where they want. And they're yeah. going to, it's so there's this redistribution of 
like bucks, right? So they're not being as friendly anymore. They're jockeying for position. They're trying to find the best cover so that when the rut comes, they are going to get the first crack at the first, you know, the first breedable doe. So one thing that I've noticed on the properties that I hunt is there's a big redistribution. And sometimes the big bucks stick around and they're there all through October. And sometimes they leave and then only come back for, you know, a week or so, a five day period during the rut. And, um, and then other bucks come and go. So the, what really makes my farm kind of special or some of the farms that I hunt kind of special is there's good water systems, what creeks and waterways and okay. terrain features in these that let deer kind of cycle through check doe bedding areas. And it, they, they work these big, these big circles. And I, and I just kind of put myself into the best possible, you know, best possible position based off of historical information, based off of uh, wind direction, terrain features, uh, you know, what, what is this doe group doing right over here? And how can I use that knowledge to put a stand in there to where a buck can follow them, let's say in, in October or, or be looking for them in November? Yeah. It's cool. I mean, it's cool to see all the different things that are factoring into your hunts. Um, but then you're still able to somehow take all of it, compile a game plan and execute on it year after year. It's, it's funny to talk to people who don't hunt or just getting into hunting and you like talk through different scenarios with them and you're, they're like, well, wait, you said not to do that. And you're like, well, one little thing changed. And so now that is the best thing to do. And they're like, wait, exactly. this doesn't make sense, but you, you can't figure it out until you've done it and failed and tried and failed multiple times. Failure, man. A failure is the best thing for any, any hunter who wants to get closer to deer and you, you fail and then you learn from it. And then you take that information and you apply it to your next hunt and, and you hope it doesn't happen again. So, yep. Yeah. I worked for a company out in Colorado and the family that ran the company, one of their uh, number one mottos was fail forward. They're like, if we fail, we're failing forward every time and we're going to learn from it and continue to grow. And I, there's not many things that apply more to hunting than that right there. Um, Yeah. You, you just learn more from failure than you do success. You could be lucky and have just the right deer on the right day, walk under your stand but if you, if you pretend that it's going to happen like that every time, you're going to get upset right. pretty quick in the hunting world. Right, right. Um, so I want to go back to the deer on the wall behind you. Uh, okay. What are these deer that you had tracked in the past and you had names for them? Because some of the names will ring a bell for me. Um, but I just, like I said, I'm not up to date to know which ones you've taken now. Yeah, I, you know, these, these deer back here are, I don't know if, I think there's one buck up there I named Bulldog. It's this one right here, just because the, the uh, trail camera pictures that I got of him when I was, you know, like right before that season started, uh, his neck was already huge and he looked like a bulldog just kind (laughs) of walking through the timber. And, um, so other than that, I got hit, I had some history with him. Um, no history really with any of the other deer that I shot, except for this buck right here. 
Um, and I found his shed while shed hunting in 2000, the spring of 2018. And then I ended up killing him. And well, I tell, I'll, I'll back up even. I had trail camera pictures of, of this buck right here. And he was this beautiful three-year-old. And I said, oh man, I do not want to hunt this deer because if, you know, I know where he's going, I'm just going to stay out of there because I don't want to be tempted with, you know, just with shooting him yep. and season goes on. And, uh, I shot a, I shot a different deer, uh, that year. And, uh, so I find his shed to that deer in the spring of 18. And then the, uh, spring of, uh, the fall of 18, I, you know, I'm having trouble locating a deer on the other side of this farm. I was hunting a couple really big deer and uh, they just disappeared. And instead of putting all my eggs into one basket, I said, Hey, I'm going to go to the complete opposite side of the farm and I'm just going to see what's there. So I had trail cameras, pictures of this buck in September in velvet still. It's like one of the first days of uh, September and then I had trail camera pictures of them across the road in a field uh, previous years. And then I, where I found his shed, right? So I drew a line on a map from where I got the trail camera pictures through where I found his shed to the other trail camera pictures. And I set up halfway in between those two spaces and uh, in, in a really good terrain feature. And as luck would have it, he popped out that night right after it quit raining. And, uh, I put an arrow through him and took, took me two days to find him, but got the job done. And, uh, yeah, man, that's so cool. Yeah. I, I, there's something about stories like that where you're like, you yeah. just, if you, if you take a second and think logically, like you said, you drew a map, a line on a map and you're like, he's obviously traveling here to yeah. here. So I just have to intercept him somewhere. Yeah. And then when it comes together, that's awesome. Um, on a different note, I, I like to ask people if you could, if you could hunt anything, like, do you have a bucket list item that you're hoping to go and experience at some point? Um, a type of hunt, a type of, a type of, uh, weapon, and then also a location. Yeah. So if, if we're going to, you know, play the hypothetical game here, I, <laughs> Mule deer and elk right now are, I, I have access to that pretty easily. You know, yeah. I'm active, I'm actively mule deer hunting and, um, I, I was actively elk hunting, uh, but I didn't draw the Wyoming tag this year. So I decided to not elk hunt that year and I'm going to mule deer hunt. But outside of that, you know, I want to kill an antelope, um, obviously with my bow but the, the dream hunts are like the, the Yukon river float trip where you pull off onto these big rock sandbars and you during the, the moose rut and you try to call a moose in, or, you know, you're hunting grizzly bear country hunting for moose or whatever. Yep. And then, so that's a, that's, that's a big dream of mine as well. But then uh, also is caribou. I want to, I want to go on some kind of big tundra type caribou hunt, uh, in s some way and, uh, definitely hunt a caribou with a bow as well. So those, those are two dream kind of dream hunts that I have. 
Yeah. I, I can agree with you a hundred percent on those two hunts. I tell everybody my number one is a Yukon moose. I want to do a fly in float out hunt. It doesn't matter how far the float is. Preferably it'd be like a 200 mile float, you know, and you just (laughs) pull off on the side, maybe get up on a small knob and, and just call and wait and see what happens. I was fortunate to go on a moose hunt with a buddy in, in uh, Colorado a couple of years ago. He drew a moose tag and it was a lot of fun, just the scouting of it. But I don't know if the moose in Alaska are as dumb as the moose in Colorado, (laughs) those moose in Colorado, they just, they're just not scared of you at all. I mean, we stood 40 feet from three cows and they just sat there eating the whole time. Didn't seem phased at all, but, um, but yeah, Yukon moose is where it's at. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that meat that comes with a moose is like, it's like a year and a half worth of meat right there. Right. Oh, yeah. You don't need to like, I, if I shot a moose, I'd probably have to buy two more deep freezes. Yep. Yeah. We, uh, he gave, he gave some meat to all the different people that came out on the hunt with us. Um, but it was crazy. We cooked up the moose tongue and the heart that night when he shot one and yeah. the tongue and the heart alone fed like five people. Yeah, it's crazy. And I'm like, those are, those are cuts that most people don't take off of any animal. And yeah. you know, we could feed that many people with it, but those quarters are heavy. I believe it. It was, yeah. it was crazy. So yeah, I, I like that. I like that idea for bucket list hunt. Um, what are you, what are you doing this year? What, what are you changing up this year that maybe is different from what you've done in the past? Um, have you learned any new strategies or tactics that you're trying to implement? Man, this is, this is where we can get really go off into some muddy, deep waters, right? Um, as far as what I'm doing, I mean, it's simple. I'm going uh, September mule deer hunt, October mule deer hunt, and then I'll be back in Iowa for the rut. But as far as strategy is concerned, and I'll stick to, I guess, would be my bread and butter, which would be whitetails. I only make decisions based off of experiences that have happened to me, right? There's a lot of people out there who listen to a podcast or they're watching a video or they're, they're trying to watch strategy or listen to strategy tactics, tips, and trips when I may give out a a bit of advice on my podcast about how to hunt deer or something like that. But you should only take away the principles of that type of information, not actually do what I'm doing on my farm because I've never hunted the properties that you hunt. So I would, I would expect to do something different, the same as if you would come on to the properties that I hunt, you would have to learn different nuances of how each property lays, whether it's aggressive terrain, whether it's flat, whether it's uh, river bottom ground, whether it's big woods, whatever. Right. So as far as my strategy for whitetails is concerned, really it's, it's just fluid and it's just, there's not one strategy that I take into the timber with me. It's years of failing. It's years of doing things wrong. It's years of doing things right. That all come in to the decision-making that I'm doing on every single hunt that I go both morning, night, you know, preseason, rut, late season, all that stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, it's whitetails are kind of property independent. Like you're not going to hunt the same type of deer every location. There are certain principles that come away or with whitetails that you have to follow. But as far as the strategy of putting it together, it's, it's different every time. Like where I hunt, it's about 200 to 250 acres, but I have no pressure to the North, no pressure to the East or West. And there's one hunter to the South on 400 acres. And so it's like, I try to tell my friends and they're like, Oh man, it's going to be really tough to get these deer. And I'm like, honestly, they don't have a lot of pressure. And the times that they see people, it's me walking out, um, to put, to put, or to check trail cameras, or I'm down by the pond fishing or something like that. And it, I don't want to say that these deer are completely used to me, but I'm out there a couple times a week. And so they know I'm there. They're still coming in front of my trail cameras within hours of me being out there checking the cards. Um, and I, I get crap from a lot of people about this, but I don't do a whole lot of scent control at all. If I'm hunting, I play the wind, but even when I'm checking trail trail cameras, I feel like these deer are so used to the way I smell that it just doesn't phase them anymore. Now, if somebody else came in with a whole different smell, they might associate it with danger or a person or whatever, but because I'm out there all the time, that's just kind of my tactic. And even, even hunting, I don't spray down. I don't use a different washing machine for my clothes. Like I live in a 600 square foot house. I don't have room for two washing machines, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, man, it's, uh, it's different for, everybody, you know, and I think a lot of it comes back to what people are confident with, right? Um, Your scent control strategy uh, may, the way you do it, you're confident with that. The way I do my scent control strategy, I'm confident with it. Um, Other people who uh, I know, you know, they're the guys who they dress at the truck, you know, do not want don't wash it in the same washing machine. They, they have this very unique way uh, and very detailed way of how they do their scent control strategy. Meanwhile, guys like you are kind of just like, eh, whatever (laughs) I play the wind. I use an Ozonics to clean my clothes, like dry wash my clothes. And then um, an Ozonics in the tree with me as well, which I've had some really good, uh, you know, experiences with that. And it's, I feel confident doing it that way. And, uh, you know, it's all about what you feel confident in. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I mean, once, once you get your own system down, um, there's no one way to kill a whitetail. And it's funny because you listen to the professionals like on all these different podcasts and you'll hear one guy and he's like, this is how you do it. The next guy says a totally different thing, but you just have to figure out what works for you, what works in your area and what, what you're confident doing, like you said. So Man, the season's coming up quick. Yeah. How how long before your whitetail season kicks off? Yeah, so October 1st is when Iowa opens. Okay. So uh, I'll be, I guess it depends because I could be hunting whitetails in Nebraska and South Dakota because those tags are good for any deer. So I oh, can nice. shoot a whitetail or I can shoot a mule deer. But, um, I you know, I'm going to be actively hunting mule deer. Yeah. But, Iowa doesn't open up until October 1st. Okay. Are those, are those tags over the counter tags or did you have to draw them? Uh, in Iowa? Uh, no, for South Dakota and Nebraska. Uh, yeah. So you have to put in an application for South Dakota and I believe Nebraska is over the counter. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. We've got, we've got our hunts yep. starting 
in Missouri in middle of September. Um, we don't have any mm-hmm. mule deer here, but the whitetail kicks off then. Dove opens up before that. I like to hunt everything. I know some people are diehard about one thing, yeah. but I'm like, man, I I get way more excited about archery whitetail than anything else. But if I could only hunt archery whitetail, that'd be tough. I'm like, I got to be outside. I got to be pursuing something all the time. Um, but yeah, we've got that. And then I've got to hunt out in Colorado. I'll be taking some guys out that have never hunted Colorado before. And we're going to go out for elk. I'll, I drew a mule deer tag and then we'll probably get an over the counter bear tag as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. My buddy's my, I got a buddy out in Colorado who's going elk hunting and he's going to take a bear tag too. And that's where I kind of cut my teeth on elk hunting was out in Colorado and yeah, man, that's hard out there. It's not easy at all, man. I, uh, I know some guys who are the, the guy who first introduced me to elk hunting and I never went with him, but I just heard stories growing up. He owns the property I hunt in Wisconsin for whitetail. And he goes out by himself. He's a dairy farmer, sells his cattle every year, goes out and uh, archery hunts elk for a month by himself. And I mean, he's probably close to 60 years old now, still does the same thing. And I hear the stories and he's like, man, you might be, you might be within 12 yards of it, but you can't even move because of all the eyes on you. And that's when the passion for elk hunting started with me, but I still haven't gotten out for to watch him bugle in your face with a bow in hand. Yeah, that's a fact. So, well, Hey, I don't want to take up uh, a whole lot of your time today. I appreciate you coming on and I want to give you an opportunity to share with everybody. Where can they find what you're doing? How can they connect with sportsman's nation, nine finger chronicles, all that. Yeah. So uh, on Instagram, it's nine finger chronicles. Uh, you can go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and you can uh, find the nine finger, you know, nine finger chronicles, the hunting gear podcast, and then, or you can just type in sportsman's nation, S P O R T S M E apostrophe S nation. And you can find all of the podcasts that are on the sportsman's nation network and uh, Facebook and Instagram and all that good stuff and hit me up. Very cool. I want to give you uh, the last word. I call this segment emptying the chamber. Um, If you have anything to share with the listeners, um, now's the time to do so. Yeah, man. Uh, I'm just a big, you know, like I'm a guy who I choose experience. A lot of people will, um, how do I put this? A lot of people will dictate their success based off of a number like inches of antler or age class, or maybe even weight or or whatever of the animals that we're harvesting. But at the end of the day, none of that really matters. In my opinion, it's about the experiences because when I look at these deer behind me on the wall, every morning, when I wake up and every night before I go to bed, I'm not thinking of the score or the weight or the age. I'm thinking of the, the memory, the, You know, it was 20 degrees outside. It was a North wind. It just finished snowing or whatever, whatever that memory is and that experience. And so like life is, is about the experience and who you experience those experiences with it's experiences and people and not like records or numbers or, or crap like that. So have, go out and have as much fun as you possibly can. 
That's awesome. And it looks like you're having a ton of fun there, especially now that the kids are back in school. <laughs> oh, buddy. Oh, buddy. I'm, I'm fired up. Uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Well, I, I definitely appreciate you hopping on the call with me. I'll, uh, I'll have to shoot over some pictures on Instagram and share some stuff with you. Um, I've been getting some cool deer. I've got one yeah. deer that looks like a reindeer. I mean, it has just gnarly junk nice. coming off every direction. Um, and from what the landowner says, it's got a twin. Uh, one last year had a chocolate rack, one had a white rack, and he saw them at the same time. So I'm like, man, if I could catch up with either of those, that'd be a lot of fun. That'd be nice. Yeah. Heck so, yeah. well, good luck to you this season. Uh, I appreciate it again, and uh, we'll stay connected. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And that is going to wrap it up for today's episode of the podcast. I had so much fun chatting with Dan and hearing uh, just about his strategy, his tactic, his outlook on hunting as a whole. Uh, He's a guy that I really look up to in full transparency. I was so nervous during that, but I think I'm better now. um, And I hope this episode is something that you all have enjoyed listening to. On a different note, hop on uh, whatever your podcast platform of choice is and leave a review or rating. That definitely helps me out as a podcaster, gets, gets the podcast out to more people. And I do still have stickers available. So hop on the website or on the link in my bio or on any of my social media platforms to find those stickers and get some ordered for yourself. Until next time, though, always choose adventure and God bless.